Uh, let's go ahead and open up to Jonah chapter 3. Uh, we're going to continue. Uh, this is week 3 in our five-week series of the study of this book. And uh, as, we, as we turn there, I'm going to give you a confession. Uh, I have misinterpreted chapter 3 most of my life. And as I started studying this, I realized that I had misunderstood it. See, this was my understanding whenever I read chapter 3, was God calls Jonah again, and Jonah seems to be obedient, but we learn that Nineveh is a great city, it's a three-day journey, and Jonah goes one day, says about eight words, in the Hebrew, I think it was five words, and basically says, like, hey, God's going to destroy you. And so what we see there is Jonah doing the bare minimum. And then he just gets out of town. But despite his bare minimum efforts, God still, his power's on display as he saves people. And if this is your understanding of this chapter, I encourage you to take a fresh look with me this morning. I may be alone in that. But because of what I know in chapter 4, where Jonah kind of, he acts like a little brat and pouts, I guess that kind of influenced the way I saw chapter 3. But chapter 3, like this whole book, as we've been reminding, reminding our church each week, is this book is not about Jonah. This book is about God. And what we see, regardless of how we interpret chapter 3, if this is Jonah doing the bare minimum effort, and God's still taking that and doing something with it. Or if this is Jonah being obedient and not having to go too far into the city before God does something. What we see here, it's God's power on display in salvation. And we see God's just judgment of sin give way to his compassionate mercy. And so just like last week, I'm going to try to focus your attention not on Jonah, not on the people of Nineveh. Let's first look at who God is. What do we see about God communicated in this book, in this chapter? And then let's step back into time and say, okay, what does that mean for me? So let's read Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? 
God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you this morning praising you. Because once again, as we get into the scripture, we see that your steadfast love endures forever and that you are a God full of mercy. God, this morning as we sang, we, we ask you to reveal yourself to us, to show us who you are. Transform our hearts, Father. Where our minds need to be corrected, correct them. Purify us through the washing of the word this morning. And we pray that we would leave here a changed people with a desire to see your mercy put on display as we are merciful to others. We pray all of this in your son's holy name and for your glory. Amen. So getting into chapter 3, let's read verses 1 through 2 again. What I want you to see is kind of the story resetting. Jonah has already run away from God at the first calling, and God pursued him to the extent where he let him be thrown overboard. And what we see is from chapter 2 is that God is the one that actually did that. Like providentially, he had his hand, and he was sovereign over that that, it, that case that happened where Jonah goes into the sea as he's trying to flee from God. And we saw last week what happened there is that Jonah got a taste of what he had asked for. He was running away from the presence of God and what, he's, what he communicates in his prayers that I felt that. When I looked around and the waters were surrounding me, I felt the hopelessness that was without your presence. And yet he called out in his distress. And God was merciful to him. And God saved him in an unorthodox way. But God saved him. But that was not the end goal. The goal was not just to pursue Jonah. And as we get into this this morning, the goal is not just to pursue Nineveh either. God is all about his glory. And he's a merciful God. And so he displays his mercy in the way that he pursues Jonah. That, that, that prophet of God who fled from his presence, he said, no, you're mine, and I'm going to be merciful to you so that the world would see that. The same thing with Nineveh, this great pagan city. God pursues them so that he can be merciful and his glory would be put on display. And this morning, that, that story starts over. The one that we began in chapter 1 is now reset Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now that God has Jonah's attention and commitment to obedience, he gives him a a, a do-over, a mulligan. It's not a reward to Jonah. Thank you, Silas. Not a reward to Jonah. But because God is still in pursuit of these people, he continues to pour out his grace and his mercy. So we see in verse 1 some similarities to the original call, but also some differences. What we see in common is that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And the word of the Lord sounds very familiar. It's arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, 
and call out against it. Read with me Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Sounds very similar to what we see in chapter 3, but there are some differences. Obviously, we, know we are no longer needed to be introduced to Jonah. He is the son of Amittai. That does not need to be repeated. Nor does the reason that Jonah is to call out against them. We know why. Their evil has risen up to God. And of course, chapter 3, we know that this is the second time that the word has come to him. But here we also see something a little different. God here specifically states that Jonah is to call out the message that I tell you. But he does not give us what that message is yet. And he did not give that to Jonah. I think that's because the focus here for Jonah is not necessarily the message that is to be communicated, but on the heart of obedience that will be required. Now, this is not the main point, and so I'm not going to belabor this, but there is something for us to draw we should also be willing to be obedient without necessarily knowing how it will end, having all of the information. If you're like me, when you're starting something new, I think about how when I get projects at work, like I want to work through everything systematically. Like I want to know who's going to be a part of the project. How is it going to unfold? What difficulties, what challenges might we come across? What is the end result? How is it going to look before we ever begin? And if that's the case for you, let me give you some encouragement, not for the specific ways in which God will lead you, but maybe high level, big picture. The end result is you reigning alongside Christ in glory. You, having been perfected, having been glorified on that day of judgment, you will be spending eternity with your Savior. That's the end result. You want to know if it's going to be easy or difficult? It's going to be very difficult. It will not be convenient. Jesus promised that his disciples will face trials in this life. But he also said, take heart, because before the world hated us, the world hated him, and he has conquered the world so that we can have peace in him. And if you're wondering if it's worth it, I'll point you back to the first thing I said. We will spend eternity with Christ. It will be worth it. So I can't tell you what's going to happen. I, what, however specific, I mean, I, I think about all the times where there were specific things that Natalie and I knew we needed to follow in, in obedience. We didn't know the end result. Still don't. We didn't know specifically how things were going to unfold, but we do know that God is sanctifying us, that He is purifying us, that He is transforming us into the image of His Son. And our purpose here on this earth is to make Him known. And so we walk in obedience as best we can. In verse 3, we see a different response from Jonah. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, According to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now you don't have to have a seminary degree to understand that this is the complete opposite of what we saw in Jonah chapter 1. 
In Jonah chapter 1, we, we see God say, hey, arise. And Jonah goes down. God says, hey, go east to Nineveh, that great city. And Jonah hops on a ship heading west to get away from him. But here he, he obeys and he did so according to the Lord. And we see some more information here about Nineveh. It says that it was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Now there is a lot of ideas about what that means. It could be literally how long it would take to travel around the city, the circumference of the city. Could be how to travel from one side to the other. It could be how long it may take for one to travel in the city and see the whole city or for one to deliver this message in all the different areas of the city so that it would be considered adequate, delivered. Either way, we know that this was a three-day journey for Jonah as he got there. It would have taken him many more days to just travel to get there. And what we see in chapter and verse 4 is astounding. I'll read through verses 4 through 9 because I want you to see what God's message is and I want you to see Nineveh's response. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In verse 4, Jonah goes one day journey into Nineveh and delivers the message. And the people believed. This does not speak to the faithfulness of Jonah but the faithfulness and power of God is it will only require Jonah just to step foot into the city because God had gone before him. Their hearts were prepared to receive this message and revival breaks out. The message is God's, it is not Jonah's. And it's likely not the only thing he said. Something that I learned when I was studying this. More than likely, this is just a summary of the things that he would have communicated. The thing that, that Nineveh would have remembered was destruction is coming. And it is just. And it is right. Our focus then is not necessarily on the message itself. Again, we have eight words. We don't spend our time trying to figure out all that Jonah would have gone into, but we do know the summary statement of his message, of God's message to this people. So our focus then is on the power of God displayed in the message. 
the response of the city is faith and repentance. Hearts that were prepared, receiving the word and responding in faith and repentance. The people of Nineveh believed God. That means that they trusted that the word delivered by this prophet was true. And you see the repentance. Their hearts and minds were awakened to the reality of their sinful disobedience to God and they mourned over their sin. They were broken over the fact that they had disobeyed this God. They put on sackcloth in their grief grief from the greatest to the least. Speaking of the greatest, he introduces us to what happened with the king. The response of the king is very similar to that of the whole people. He responds in faith and repentance. He also believes the word that was delivered. And he responds in repentance. It says he removes himself from his throne. A position of power. He steps down. Recognizing that he is not all-powerful in light of this holy God that he has no control over. And instead, he submits himself to him. He removed his robe, a symbol of honor and authority, in recognition of the shame and guilt that he bore. And he grieves, covering himself with sackcloth and sits in ashes. Not only that, he calls out the whole nation to repent. I couldn't help but think about, once again, the sailors on the ship. Pagan people who, when seeing the power of God on display, you see the captain of the ship go to a man of God and say, cry out to your God. And when they see God's power on display, as they throw Jonah overboard and everything stops, they believed. They responded in faith. And I couldn't help but think about how this king was just like that. How this king was like John the Baptist who goes out into the wilderness telling people, repent, repent, because the king is coming. This man responds in faith and repentance, but then calls his whole nation to repentance. He issued a decree, an official message from the king and said, let no one eat or drink. Instead, mourn over your sin. Call out to this God and beg for mercy. Let's turn from our evil ways. And I love verse 9. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe he will be merciful to us. We see two things here. First, the hopelessness communicated in the question. Who knows? Recognizing the fact that God did not owe them anything. But call out to him and maybe he won't give us what we deserve. It's the same feeling that Jonah had in chapter 2. When Jonah is sinking further and further into the sea, he just says, I look around me and the waters are surrounding me. The waves and billows are crashing over me, pushing me deeper and deeper. And I felt the hopelessness that was without God. And I called out to you in my distress. And you answered me. It's the same feeling now. Jonah has, by proclaiming this message of destruction, of just punishment for their sin, Jonah has thrown Nineveh overboard. 
and as they look around them, they realize the hopelessness that is without God's mercy. And so they only have one response. Who knows? Cry out to him. Maybe he'll give us mercy. That's the second thing we see here is that there is hope in their hopelessness. But the only hope they have is the same hope that we talked about last week with Jonah. It's only in God's mercy. That's it. They can turn to no other God. They can't look to each other. Their only hope is that God would extend mercy to them. Church, this is the fruit of sin. This is what it produces. Hopelessness. Desperation. Let this be a reminder to those in this room who will, be, who will be faced with temptation this week to surrender to the sinful desires of our flesh. That way is easier. But as Jesus said, it is a way that leads to destruction. And that is where Nineveh was. They had taken that easy way. And God reminded them, hey, that way leads to destruction. Forty days for you. For those that have already given into that temptation, you've trusted Christ, but maybe this past week you, you, did not, you did not succumb to the leading of the Holy Spirit, but you gave in to the desires of your flesh. I'll ask you, just like the king did, his city, cry out to God for mercy. Ask him for his mercy. Who knows? Maybe he'll be merciful to you. Let's not walk around Christian like, like we, now that we've trusted in Christ, like we still deserve mercy. Let's go back to where we first felt that initial hopelessness when we were cast overboard. When we felt the weight and the burden of our sin. And we felt what it was like to have to take that weight upon ourselves, realizing that we could not, that we were drowning as that weight buried us beneath the sea. Let's not walk around now arrogantly as though now God owes us mercy. Let's continue to come down and bow before the feet of Jesus and say, will you have mercy on my soul? And I've got good news. Because what we see in verse 10 is that God delights in giving mercy. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. In this response of God, we are forced to ask an important theological question. Does God change his mind? This is an idea that is not isolated to this text. I think about when I, when I read about how God flooded the entire earth. There's this impression that, that we read about where he, he was sorry that he created man. And so he corrected his course of action and he started over. We see it also, if you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15. This morning we read from a psalm where David was fleeing from Saul. 
And we kind of see what was going on here with, with Saul. Jeremiah, I mean, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 through 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. This is the word of God. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. It says that God regretted something that he did. Same chapter. For me, I do have to turn a page. Some of you, you may not have to. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 28 through 29. And Samuel said to him, the Lord, speaking to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So what are we to do with that? In chapter 15, verse 10, I regret that I've made Saul king. The word of the Lord later on in chapter, verse 28, he's not a man, he doesn't have regret. What do we do with that? I think what we have here is God's character on display where he is personal. He is relational. We see that in Jonah chapter 3 there. God says, I'm going to destroy you in 40 days and then God relents from doing that after they repented. He is relational. He changes how he interacts with man, but he himself does not change. His character remains true. What we see here in Jonah chapter 3 is consistent with what we see in Jeremiah chapter 18. If you'll turn there, I think this is very important for us. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise, and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do, the, do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I have intended to do to it. So what we see here in Jonah chapter 3 is that God does not, he does not submit himself to the actions of man. God is still sovereign. And he is still providentially working all things out for his glory and our good. But what we see here is that this is perfectly in line with who he is. If he declares, I'm going to destroy you, and man repents, man turns away from their evil and instead turns to him, he says, I will pour out mercy on you. That action does not earn anything from God. God then still says, I'll give you grace. I'll give you something you don't deserve. 
I will withhold that judgment that is just and that is right. I will withhold that from you because I am a God of mercy. That's who God is. What we see is God's declaration of justice gives way to repentance and then God relents. But we also see that God's declaration of justice ignored leads to judgment. And we see that in Jonah chapter 3 in a couple of ways. Number one, that the message was given to begin with. Right? There was a purpose in the message even being given. God could have just judged them right then and there. He did not even have to deliver a message, but then also that the message contained a warning 40 days from now. In 40 days, I will bring destruction. You will be overthrown. His intention here is that they would hear that and that they would repent, that they would respond the way that they did. This is nothing new for God. It's also nothing old. This is still who God is. It continues today. And all of us, whether we believe it or not, have received mercy even this morning. As I was thinking of what are the implications here, man, I I can't help but see the parallels between Jonah and Nineveh. In chapter 2, we see the hopelessness, the cry out in distress, and we see God extend mercy. And then God uses that very man to then extend mercy to another people group. And they feel the hopelessness. They cry out in distress. And God extends mercy. So very much like last week, we have the same implications that we draw from this. Man, woman, cry out to God in your distress. He is a merciful God. Do not run from His presence. You don't want to go there. Cry out to Him. Return to Him. And it will, I, I, like, like last week, it won't be easy. I can't promise you that. In fact, more than likely, it's going to be very difficult. But it will end in your good. If you're not a believer this morning, I plead with you to hear the message that God is bringing. We are all sinners. We have all disobeyed God. We have offended Him. And the penalty for that is eternal destruction. And I can't give you a number of days. God didn't give me that message to bring. I don't know if it's in 40 days or if it's in a couple of hours. But destruction is coming. But there's good news with this. That despite the fact that the kingdom that you're trying to build here on earth will be overthrown, He's merciful. Hear the message and respond like Nineveh. Believe and repent. What has to happen is you have to feel the burden and hopelessness of your sin. You have to feel that. As much as I want to comfort you, and offer you encouragement, I have to deliver the message that is true. And the message that is true is that destruction is waiting for you. Unless you turn to Him. You look at Jesus Christ. Because remember, the sign of Jonah 
is so that we would know who Jesus is. This man that would be buried in the belly of a fish for three days and then come out of there alive is meant to point us to the greater Jonah, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross, who paid the price, that that penalty for our sin. He took that upon himself, was buried for three days, and then was resurrected giving evidence to the fact that he had conquered death, that he had paid that penalty in full. There is nothing else you need to do but believe and repent. Turn away from your sin and instead turn to Jesus. Turn away from the things of this world that you've been pursuing and say, I forget all that. The cross before me, the world behind me, I'm living my life for Jesus. And who knows? If you cry out to him, maybe he will be merciful to you. I say maybe because that's the way we feel when we cry out to him. But I tell you, matter of factly, he will. He will be merciful to you because that is consistent with the character of God. Cry out to him. Ask him to give you the faith to believe this. That there is, in fact, good news. Christian, you have received mercy. You have cried out to God in your hopelessness, and He has provided you with eternal hope in Jesus Christ. Live in the freedom of the mercy that He has given you. Shall we continue in sin that grace and mercy may abound? By no means. But don't live in the shame of your sin. Return to Him. Cry out to Him for more mercy. And His mercies for you, They're new every single morning. He will not run out. He will not run out of patience with you. He is a patient God. Don't let your sin define you because you are a new creation. Just because you did something last night where you ran from the presence of God to enjoy a little fun, or this week, or maybe this coming week if you do so. God's power is not found in you, the messenger. It is found in Him, the God who is working salvation for His purposes. So that does not mean you cannot be used. Jonah, I mean, days after being vomited up out of the belly of a fish, God comes to him and says, Arise, now go, because I can use you and I will. I have extended you mercy so that you would extend my mercy to others. That is what we are to do, church. We are to be a people of mercy and compassion. Deliver God's message without fear. You don't know the result, but the power of the gospel does not lie in you, the speaker but in God, the one who is delivering the message. It lies in the sovereign creator who has proven his faithfulness and who has proven the lengths that he will go to to accomplish his will. It lies in the glorious son who laid down his life so that we might be resurrected to a new life with him. It lies in the Holy Spirit who awakens us and grants us the faith that we need to believe. That's where the power is. So go boldly. Proclaim Christ crucified in word and in deed. Glorify our Father in heaven. Preach the good news because there are people who are longing 
for the good news. It would be terrible of us just to communicate the bad news that the Bible proclaims that destruction is coming and there is no hope because we know that there is a hope and the world is looking for that. I want to give you some encouragement from the Apostle Paul as we close. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Romans chapter 1, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. This message of good news that we have, that we have experienced and that we know to be true, that is full of power. But it does not lie with you. And I say that because I want to I remove this burden from you that you feel like, man, I've got to know this thing front and back. Like I've got to be able to answer any question that, that, that may come. I tell you, you don't. And you will never be able to do that. Your life will be spent studying this book, learning more about who God is. And as soon as you think you've got to figure it out, He's going to reveal Himself in a new way to you. A way that you did not see coming. But the power is not in you. It is not in your knowledge. It is not in your ability to communicate. You preach Christ and Christ crucified. And the power will go out with the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit takes that word, that gospel call that you issue. And He will regenerate souls. And He will bring life to the dead. And we know this to be true because it's happened to us. We were once dead in the trespasses of our sin. But he has raised us to new life in Jesus Christ. Let our lives be a a testimony to what we have experienced. And let us proclaim the good news that we have received. And to God be the glory when he uses us, weak, feeble man, to accomplish his purposes. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We, we come to you asking for your power. God, there are some who are in the midst of turbulent waters, sinking deeper and deeper. Father, there are some in this room where destruction is just around the corner. And we don't fault you for that because you are just in doing so. But God, would you extend mercy to us? Would you relent? Father, would you grant the power of your Spirit to awaken us to new life so that we would respond in faith and repentance and receive your mercy? Father, for the, for the believers in our church, we pray that 
that we would not live in the shame and guilt of our sin, but that we would that we would appreciate and recognize the power of the cross of Christ. That our payment has been paid in full. And that we have future grace awaiting us when we make mistakes. But Father, as, as believers who are, who are now a new creation, we, we know that we do not receive grace so that we may continue in sin. Would you continue to transform our souls? Would you continue to convict us of the hard things that are the dark things in our hearts? So that we might pursue righteousness in your glory. And Father, for those that are intimidated by the gospel call that, that you have given your church to make much of you in our neighborhood and to the nations, would you remind us of the power that we have, that we have experienced? Father, I pray that your people would respond with faith and trust that you will use us in our weakness so that those who would respond in faith and repentance and belief to our gospel call would would not do so because of the, the cunning speech of man or the wisdom of man, but because of your power and your power alone. God, as we transition now into this time of reflecting on, on what we've learned about you and respond in praise, I pray that we would do so with hearts submitting to your power and to your authority. And that we would put everything on the table and say, God, use us as you would. Would you center our life on your Son, Jesus Christ, for your glory and your glory alone. Amen.